Welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. Hi everyone, this is Anna Zimmerman coming back at you with episode 6 of the Mighty Littles Podcast. Today on the podcast, I am talking to Megan. She has three children. Her youngest is Clayton, and Clayton was in the NICU about a year and a half ago after a relatively uncomplicated pregnancy. Right before he was born, his heart rate was down for six minutes, and he needed resuscitation after birth and went to the newborn ICU for something called total body cooling for treatment of hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. Essentially, he came out very stressed with a lack of oxygen because of his heart rate being down, and they were following him for seizures and following him for any damage that that lack of oxygen could have caused his brain or his kidneys or his liver. I think that Megan does a really nice job of talking about how there is this misconception that babies are either born healthy or they're born stillborn, with the exception of premature babies or babies that have pre-known conditions, and that those kids go to the NICU and they get some help and then they go home. And Megan really talks about that space in between where babies aren't born healthy and they need quite a bit of help and how to manage some feelings of anxiety to be able to stay in the moment and enjoy your baby even though things around you are still pretty stressful and chaotic. So I really appreciate Megan coming on the podcast today. I hope all of you enjoy the podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it. Here is Megan. Megan, thank you so much for joining us on the Mighty Littles podcast today. I'm really excited to have you tell your story about your delivery and your uh, experience in the NICU. Why don't we start by having you introduce yourself to the Mighty Littles listeners? Sure. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I think what you're doing is amazing, both in the NICU and outside of the NICU and with your family. I'm just so grateful for you and that I found um, your blog and your website. So I am a mom of three. I live in Washington, D.C., and I have a son who is six, a daughter who's four, and a baby, Clayton, who is 15 months. And Clayton... When he was born at seven, or I'm sorry, at 37 weeks and five days, he suffered a severe but quick birth trauma. And he spent three weeks uh, in the uh, level four NICU in DC. Um, so this is just a little bit about our journey through that. Yeah, perfect. Tell me about your first two pregnancies. Any any complications, healthy term deliveries? My first two were term deliveries. Um, my, my son, um, the one who's now six, he was induced at 38 weeks for a little bit of bleeding and high blood pressure, but it was a totally uncomplicated situation. Nothing came out of it. He was healthy, went home two days later. My daughter was born at a day before my due date. Um, she she came on herself on her own terms and again uncomplicated. So with Clayton, actually it was it was again an uncomplicated pregnancy, but I had a lot of crippling anxiety with him. It was nightmares. I sought therapy. I just had a feeling like we were lucky twice. I don't. How can you be lucky three times? I I just feel. Um, like there's something wrong. Um, and I was just trying to get through each milestone. The therapy really helped. 
Um, I got past my anatomy scan. I started to feel better. Even in my first two pregnancies, I was never one to think, oh, nothing's going to happen. Everything's going to be fine. I was always worried about preterm delivery and um, complications and things like that. So I was always nervous, but Clayton was like at the next, my baby was at the, the next level. So did you have um, any family members that had complications with their pregnancies or any medical background to make you feel that way? Or this is yeah. just your brain doing its thing? It was just, they think maybe hormonal or just, uh, you know, normal pregnancy fears to the extreme. Right. Um, I did get through the anatomy scan. I started to feel a little bit better um, with each passing week. I did decide I had an epidural with my first two. It was a wonderful experience, but I did decide for my third, I wanted to experience an unmedicated birth just for personal reasons. I just wanted to know. And so I hired a doula. She was laying out options. Um, she said, you, you know, you could have a home birth because he's your third. Um, you could do a birthing center, midwives, you know. And I was just like, I just... I, it needs to be the hospital and it needs to be the hospital that the other two were delivered at because that is where I felt comfortable and that's what I want. And the funny thing is the hospital that I delivered at had a level four NICU and each time I walked by, including when I had Clayton, I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> it was just, oh, there's the NICU and I'm just gonna, you know, go have my baby. So um, I think a lot of things fell into place that I made the decision I'm, you know, I'm having Clayton in the hospital, um, even though I, I don't want interventions. And that was ended up being the best decision I ever made. So for me personally. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of people don't realize that you can deliver you can deliver at home, you can deliver at a birthing center, and you can deliver at a hospital. And for all of those, you can have an unmedicated uh, delivery. It's just the amount of resources that are available if there is an emergency that's different yeah. between those three yeah. situations. But you can have an unmedicated delivery regardless of where you deliver. I got through the weeks, um, 37 weeks um, in about five days. Um, I went into labor. I played the whole denial. Uh, I'm not really in labor. This really, really hurts. But the contractions were very far apart. They were 20, 25 minutes apart. And I said, I do not want to go to the hospital until, you know, they're closer together. So I waited, I chose to go out to eat. And finally, I was packing my my bag and the contents of my bag were laughable because it was the middle of January and I had a tank top and no toothbrush. And I don't even know what I put in that bag. But I was very distracted. And at that point, I said, we need to go. We need to go now. Um, another thing that comes up later that was challenging is we do have the two older kids. So we had nowhere to take our kids. My father-in-law said he would, he would come, but it would be an hour and a half. I said, no, we need to go to this hospital right now. So our kids were crying. It was very... Um, stressful situation you know we we just took them to the hospital they dropped me off I went in I was admitted I had kind of it was just very textbook by that point um they checked me in they said you're seven centimeters so I knew like okay I am in labor <laughs> I at that point um I, I had no signs of labor as far as like bleeding or spotting or anything like that because that, that'll come up later um so it was just kind of they put me on wireless monitors the entire time which was great they had a read on Clayton's heart they had a read on my heart they checked my placenta everything was fine my children were in the waiting room um watching a show on my husband's phone and he was running back and forth until my uh, father-in-law could come and get them so there was a lot of um 
you know, high emotions as, as there is when you're, when you're having a baby. But it very shortly after I got there, about an hour and 10 minutes, maybe after I got to the hospital, I, I felt I needed to push. So I went in the bed again, the whole time there was, there was no bleeding. There was, um, perfect heart rate. They broke my water. They said, would you like us to break, break your water? I I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> so they broke my water and they said, oh, it's very bloody. So it was a little bit of concern, but I was in complete la-la land. And, I, you know, I said, well, of course there is. I haven't seen anything until now. You know, I, I didn't realize, like, when they break your water and it's bloody, this is not necessarily normal. I was not understanding that my husband was a little concerned. Um, shortly after that, I started pushing about four minutes into pushing. Um, Clayton's heart rate decelerated to the 60s and um, it was dropping and staying and not, you know, coming back up and let's watch this. It was very, then if you got the call, um, which again ended up being a blessing because he, this was the team that treated him throughout. So they were there when he was born, which was a, a blessing in his situation. So I didn't even know the NICU team was in the room. I was saying, I can't do it. And everyone was just screaming, like, you need to do it. And you need to get him out now. He was past the C-section line. We just had to get him out. So for six minutes, his heart rate was down, which meant he was losing, losing blood and oxygen to his brain. I didn't know any of this at the time. Even my husband, um, he is an anatomy teacher, so he has an understanding of, of these things to a certain extent. Knew that this isn't good, but I think it's going to be okay type of feeling. So they needed to use a vacuum for Clayton. That part was also very traumatic because it was incredibly painful. So they got him out and they held him up. As they held him up, I kind of reached for him. He was very pale. But again, I, I didn't see any of this. I just saw baby. And in my mind going into this, I did I, I knew that there could be stillbirths. And I was terrified of that. But I didn't know there was really kind of in between. And that sounds so crazy. But I guess I just thought, like, you have a baby and there's the baby and he's okay. We didn't know if it was a boy or girl. And they rushed him away because he was very pale. They held him up and he kind of went limp and he got really pale. And I said, I, I didn't see any of that being in complete post-birth la-la land. And I said, is it a boy? Is it a girl? And they said, it's a boy. And they just ran. And they, at that point, suctioned. They used a wall suction. He had a lot of blood um, that he had inhaled. And his first Apgar at the very beginning of life uh, was a two. So my husband was with him. And I still feel guilt at times that I was talking about the weather and my kids and skiing because in my head, it was complete, utter denial of he's fine. He'll be back. And even if he goes to the NICU, he's full term. He's full term. He's fine. So um, I was not getting this. My husband was was getting this and he was processing it alone. So um, they took Clayton, and once they saw his Apgar was so low, he was hypotonic. Um, he lacked his reflexes. He did not need to be intubated, which was huge, we found out later. But they did a, um, like a neocuff, it was called, a positive pressure yep. to so get him. 
Yep. So that's a Neopuff. That's where we, because he's not doing the breathing for himself, we use our equipment to do the breathing for him. And we'll always try that first before we intubate or put in a breathing tube. For some kids, they come around with that Neopuff. And for other kids, they still don't come around just yet. And then they need the ongoing breathing support from us. And that's when we go ahead and put that breathing tube in. So luckily, he did not need the next step. Uh, He started, um, I was looking back in his paperwork, because again, this is just all happening so fast. And um, at this point, you know, 25 people in the room, and but I didn't see any of them. I saw that I had a baby and I I was starting to pump is is what was happening. So he had uh, spontaneous respirations after three minutes, and they rushed him then to the NICU for further resuscitation and they took my my husband back with him at this point uh, I guess at five minutes of life they did another um APGAR he was still a two and he was losing more reflexes they were getting very concerned um I I asked my husband a lot about it he's much stronger than me and he he said that there was a substantial amount of concern but also calmness and in that they knew what to do. And he felt comforted in that, that it was very like, we need to do this. We need to do this. We need to do this. But it was very like, he started to realize like, this is more than the baby needs a little bit of oxygen. Uh, Somewhere within the first hour, I was still in the delivery room, still talking about the weather and what we were going to name him and thinking he's going to come right back. And and no sense of, of really the urgency. And, and the NICU was outstanding where they came. They, they would talk to me. Um, and they were like, this could be very bad. We, we, we don't know yet. And, and the words were coming at me. But I was like, okay, all right. And like, no. But you didn't really hear them. Didn't hear it. No. Was not comprehending. While in the NICU with my husband, they got Clayton's um, um, umbilical cord gas. And this was all new to me. I didn't know any, any of this world existed. And then um, his, the gas in his umbilical cord showed that he lost an oxygen to his brain. And some of his um, like liver enzymes and cardiac enzymes were elevated. All of this was showing like he had enough distress and trauma, enough of an assault that they were going to diagnose him based on clinical and labs with HIE, or they also called it, I'm so bad at saying it, but neonatal encephalopathy, um, grade two. Let me interrupt you for just a second. So there's several different ways to classify it. It's classified based on a SARNAT score, looking at how the baby's breathing, what the reflexes are, what the tone is, um, how the pupils are responding, things like that. And so the fancy names that we use are neonatal encephalopathy, which just means that you're a baby and there's a lack of oxygen to your brain. And then the other thing, the HIE that you mentioned is hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, which just describes the process. The hypoxic is lack of oxygen. The ischemic is lack of blood flow. And then the encephalopathy is the lack of oxygen to the brain. So both neonatal encephalopathy and HIE are both ways to categorize when babies come out and think that transition doesn't go as we expect, this is what we worry about. A lack of oxygen to the brain, to the kidney, to the liver, to the heart, to the intestines, everything. Yes. Um, so they were telling my husband this. I wasn't given the details of this. I think that the staff did an incredible job realizing, like, this this woman is not getting it. So we're just going to roll with her if she wants to talk about music 
but like let's just kind of they really protected me nobody was in there trying to scare tactics um because i had my husband on board and we kind of this was still within the first hour um so they had time with me and that was that was that was huge for me looking back it could have you know it could have played out differently for my own mental health in that in that point and so they mentioned uh, hypothermia, um, cooling treatment for um, Clayton. And my husband, his first reaction to this, when this was all presented, was, but, you know, he, he looks okay. You know, are, are we sure? And the, the neonatologist said, listen, um, it, it was the fellowship doctor who was, who was um, working on this. Um, and, and he said, he's not doing this. He's not doing this. He's not doing this. Like he looks good because he's a full-term baby, but we, you know, he's, you know, all of these signs, these numbers are really not good. And I think the reason my husband was um, questioning a little bit is because, and I thought I reflected a lot about this at the time, these were all strangers to us. These were not our OBs. We didn't have a consultation. So you have a one hour old baby and they want to put your baby in a hypothermia treatment that you've never heard of. And they want to put him on morphine and it, you're, you know, you're, there was no consultation and it's like a, not necessarily a life-saving technique, but you might be able to kind of explain better about, about the therapy, but it's um, definitely, um, it really kind of helps with the potential injury. So it's kind of an urgent thing that needs to be done within um, six hours of birth. So you don't have a lot of time to debate it. So essentially the, the, basis of this total body cooling, which a lot of units are doing. Some some units are doing head cooling where they just selectively cool the head. Others are doing total body cooling. We do total body cooling. Um, and based on the pictures, your baby was total body cooling on the blankets. Um, and so the studies all came out of the fact that it, adults who have cold water drownings have better long-term neurologic outcomes than adults who drowned in warm water. And I know that sounds like a terrible thing to talk about, but the th that kind of got transferred down to the newborn ICU. Well, if you're going to have a lack of oxygen because of some event either right before or right during or right after you deliver – would babies do better if we kept them cool for a period of time? And so they did studies where they looked at different temperatures and lengths of time. And, you know, now there's the 72-hour cooling that we can do. And essentially, the aim of that is to slow down the metabolism of the body so that you have less swelling and less way that your body reacts to the injury that happened. I can't change the injury that happened, the heart rate being down for the six minutes before you delivered, the amount of resuscitation he needed, how pale he was, what his blood counts were. You know, I can't change that. But doing the cooling gives me the best opportunity to stop the swelling and the cell damage that follows that injury to give him the best chance of a long-term outcome. And all of the studies show that the earlier you start it, the better. And so as a neonatologist, it's kind of, you make your assessment and then you've got to, got to run with it. Um, and sometimes babies who have these injuries don't present to the full extent until six or 12 hours later when they start seizing, which is why when those numbers look bad, we want to go ahead and start cooling, even if babies are looking okay at the time. 
Yeah. And that's, that's kind of exactly what followed for us was the, the um, idea that he was going to be in this um, hypothermia treatment um, and that they needed to do it soon and we just needed to sign the paper and go and not ask questions. They were very good at presenting that to us. They came to talk to me probably about two hours into life. And uh, I remember it's, it was exactly like, and I, I have told many friends and family this, it was like a glass was in front of me and the words were coming and I could hear them. And I remember thinking in my head, hypothermia treatment? How, huh, how are they gonna do that? Like, like, in a, like in a bubble, like how are they gonna keep him warm if he's in hypothermia? Like what's, you know, it was like someone else's baby and not, and, and it would be horrible if it was somebody else's baby, but it was like just hitting this glass still. And I said, okay, I'll sign, you know, whatever you need to do. I was not understanding any of this. My husband was now, he's starting to look things up online starting to ask questions and just becoming devastated and going through that on his own. Um, sometimes the outcome of uh, the, the, the scary thing when, when you're a parent who goes through this is that the first thing you want to do is ask questions or look it up and say, well, what does this mean? And that's what my husband did. And the range is unaffected to loss of life. So in those first early hours, they were very good. They made no predictions. They made no statements. But my husband was having to process, like, is, like you said, it can get worse later. Like, is he going to be okay? Is he going to make it out of this? We, they um, tried to get, uh, like, a central line on him. And he also had lost, they had told me, and I, I don't know the exact numbers, but about 50% of his blood. Oh, and I'll back up. I did have a placental abruption. They they found, um, but it was it was only twenty percent, and it was concealed, and that's why there was no bleeding. So there was no signs of any of this until right before his delivery. They had a big feeling there was something else wrong with the cord because his labs and his presentation did not match a twenty percent abruption. They thought there must be something else wrong. We found out further down the line there was nothing else wrong. So we never got even a clear, real reason. And these doctors were phenomenal, but they're not forensic. You know, they don't study it. You were talking about how they were looking for more reason. And you yes. had this kind of hidden placental abruption that can cause yeah. bleeding. It can cause the amniotic fluid to look bloody. It can cause yeah. the baby to lose blood kind of through the core during the time of delivery and and be anemic, which uh, mm-hmm. I think you're going to get to here in a second. Yeah. Um, And what's interesting about when we have these things that happen with delivery is we often don't ever have a perfect explanation for parents. And so you enter into the NICU where you have a sick infant who needs a lot of support and is doing this cooling therapy and central lines and okay, what does all this mean? And I can't even build trust with you by saying, hey, this is what's going to happen, right? Because we honestly don't know. And we're not going to know for a good three to five days. And even then, we're not 100% going to know. We're just going to have a better idea of, are we a little bit worried? Are we not super worried at all? Or are we really worried? But even then, it's still not this very concrete path. And I think it's really hard for parents to trust in the NICU system and for neonatologists to try to encourage parents to trust us because we do this all the time 
and it's really scary and I don't have any good answers for you, but that's not because I don't know what I'm doing. That's right. because I exactly. honestly don't have answers for you yet. Yes. Yes. So it was, um, so yeah, so we never got that clear answer. We still to this day don't really know why he lost so much blood from a small abruption, but he did lose a substantial amount of his blood. Uh, they could not find matching blood. They were having trouble. It was taking longer than they wanted. So they gave him some saline, like volume expanders, I think it was. And at that point, he started to look better. He started to like gain some reflexes and he started to look better. At that point, though still very concerned, he was on the cooling by this point. They started to become a little bit more like, okay, you know, we can breathe a little bit easier now. I don't want to speak for them, but I'm thinking like they went from worrying like he might not make it to, okay, we're, we're, he's stable for lack of a better, you know. Um, but again, I don't want to, to speak for, for the doctors. But around this time, my husband had asked that the attending physician come and speak with me um, because I was not. I was now in the recovery room. And I was like, what do you mean it's bad? It's not bad. He's a big baby. He's, you know, he's, well, not, he's six, over six pounds. But, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, he looks okay. And my husband is like, I don't understand. So she came. Um, and it's probably about four hours into his life at this point. And I had not seen him. And um, I was in my recovery room, like I said. And, and she said I, she was absolutely extraordinary. Um, and she basically said his numbers are really bad. His labs are, are, are bad. Like the, the amount of um, oxygen that he lost and the acidosis in his blood um, is, is of the worst I've seen is, is what she said, which was scary for us to hear but she wanted us to understand that this was a serious thing she said at the same time his clinical presentation does not match those numbers and she said it could fall he could fall in either category right. and we don't know but i'm gonna hold out hope and i want you to hold out hope that he's going to be in the better category at that point i looked at john i said what category what labs what's going on um, and he told me to kind of look up the diagnosis, but, but lightly. And as soon as I looked it up, it was like 50% chance of, of this and 50% chance of severe cerebral palsy and feeding, you know, may never eat and, um, may never walk. And that was so far, not what I had envisioned that was going on with my baby that at that point it was like the glass shattered that was, protecting me. And it was, that was probably my worst moment um, of the whole experience. It was, I mean, I was, I was screaming and crying and just, that's when the trauma really hit me. And that trauma has never really totally gone away. Even 15 months later, the so, feelings of like intense fear that I experience. Right. So, so is, is that really how it, you know, like, so you've got all this information coming at you and that glass wall shatters, which, you know, yeah. that's that first stage of grief, right? Is yeah. total denial. And 
what that denial allows you to do is process what's happening in your own time. That That's a very reasonable, very appropriate response to what's happening. It's not all that uncommon with moms and dads who are going through this traumatic process where you had no idea your baby was going to be in the NICU. So that, that denial is, is very, very reasonable. When that glass shattered, was it fear? Was it anger? Was it guilt? Was it all of them? Like what were, you know, you, you said it kind of all came and you were screaming and you were crying, but yes, what were your biggest thoughts in that moment? My biggest thoughts, um, it started with like, just like your, my stomach just dropped. It was like, like indescribable fear of like, how, how could this be happening? What is going to happen? Is is he going to be okay? Like, what about our family? Like my two kids at home, what's going, you know? So it was like fear and then it was anger, like extreme, just like, I was listening to the babies in all the rooms around me, like, um, you know, crying voices and, you know, it was the middle of the night. So there were no visitors, um, that came up later where that, that anger kind of turned to sadness when I was seeing all the other term babies with their visitors and, you know, being, being, you know, walking by the rooms and everything. So, um, but at that point it was anger. It was, how could this happen? Like, this is, you know. I, I don't understand and just I was so angry about it and I was so upset and um, it was an all-consuming feeling that I've never felt before. So at that point, my husband said, you should go see him because he had been kind of coming to see me. My doula ended up being amazing and she stayed for me for like three to four hours after he was born, just distracting me, following my lead. I don't know what this poor woman thought. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know. But she was just following me with my just complete denial of the whole thing. And she left. And my husband had been bouncing back and forth, like I said. And he said, you, you know, you should go see him. And I said, I can't go see him. I'm terrified to go see him. I mean, it's not like when you have an extremely premature baby. Um, it, it was more like I wasn't, I had already seen him, you know. He was a big six-pound baby, but he I was like does he have tubes and wires and I just am terrified to to see him and my husband said he looks okay he looks okay he he has color they have him all wrapped in the cooling blanket they have him on morphine he's nice and calm and at that point I'm processing like oh cooling blanket more you know it was like but I worked up the courage I worked down to, which sounds crazy the courage to go see your baby but I was trying to you know the, everyone says you, sh- you should be calm right because even in that state they they can sense you and you know you're their mother so I was trying to kind of center myself to get there and when I went to see him for the first time um he he didn't have his EG hat on so you could really see his face and I mean, he just looked so peaceful. Um, he was wrapped in his cooling blanket. He he did have, you know, IVs and he had a breathing, um, like oxygen. And then from then it was just full, like love. And I guess you could say like, like acceptance. And it was like, we're going to be okay. It's, um, it's all going to be okay, no matter what. And I'm here and I didn't leave his side. And I just, that, that was it. 
from them. I mean, I, you couldn't pull me away from him except, you know, when, when the hours I had to, to leave. So um, that was that was seeing him, though hard for me to do, was it just was a complete 180. Well, and it's almost like even though it's the the fear is holding you back, once you got there, it was just this is my baby and I love my baby and this is what we're doing. And it almost helped push you through those emotions just to be able to be with him. Yeah. So tell me about those first kind of three to five days. You know, you just, it's kind of a hold your breath, wait and see for, for many cooling babies and cooling families that are going through the cooling process we're doing all the things to support him and keep him hydrated and have everything recover but you don't really have any information tell me about those first kind of three to five days and then what happened after you started having conversations about the data that was coming back in yes so the first you know three days um while he was on cooling um that first day i i i I don't even know when I got out of my hospital gown, to be honest. I mean, I was just, just kind of time was moving, you know, it just, everything was so critical and it felt so critical that it was just time made no sense. And I remember that first day being in my hospital gown and not even thinking like there are other people in here. Like this is not a problem. Oh, the, the NICU was an open floor. So even in the most critical beds and even for procedures it's just curtains like they I think they had one room where they would do some procedures in but there were other people you know and I was just crying and over him and I remember this um nurse and she was she was young she didn't have her own kids yet um she was the most maternal nurse I've ever met she just I wouldn't sit down for some reason it was like this maternal instinct to like protect him and like stand over him um and she brought me a chair and she said you you just gave birth you have to sit down so she she had me sit down she brought him one of those um those octopus um, for your preemie that that for him um, in his crib and I just completely lost it just like somebody cares about him you know you just want to share your baby and like there's no one and and you know I had told no one who was born because I didn't know what was going to happen and it was like her just doing these little tiny things to show me like I'm not just here to treat your baby I care about your baby those little actions throughout the first three days while he was in cooling made so much of a difference to me. Um, you know, just being brought to shoes or just being like, just, oh, he's so beautiful. Or like, you look at him sucking on his pacifier. That's amazing. He has that. That's a lot of promise, you know, like encouraging words from the staff. Um, that they, you physicians and nurses are just, they're just beyond any other healthcare workers I've ever <laughs> had experience with. Um, so that really helped us. The, the stress, the ups and downs of the first three days, I was terrified of seizures because they kept kind of gently saying um, when there is an assault like this, especially with um, Clayton's labs, there's a very high chance of seizures. And seizures, that was very scary to me. Um, I, I think as it would be to, to anyone, but I wasn't really thinking about lifelong outcome for him. I was thinking more like seizures and that is scary. So uh, they had him hooked up to a continuous EEG and there was a computer screen 
And the neurologist would review it every night. And I remember staring at that screen and saying, how could they possibly see every moment? I have to watch it. I need to know that it's not happening. There was also the, the button that if you saw um, movement in, in your baby, you would push that and then they could go back. So I remember just, just staring at him. It's almost like staring at a clock on the wall, just like waiting for something bad to happen. And that, that was really hard for me. Um, and the whole, obviously, watching his stats, um, because when they have a seizure, they were saying they could do that. So if he would, if his oxygen levels would, would um, change or desat, I'd be staring at him, staring at the EEG. And I'm not a doctor. I do not work in the medical profession at all. Like, it was just this feeling of having to do whatever I could because you can't hold him. You can't change him. Um, can't feed him. So it's like I just wanted to help him and protect him. And that was that was the first three days, I would say. Um, we were very, very worried about rewarming. It was like little milestones. Um, get here. You know, he had done well with his blood transfusion and, and you know, getting through the EEG and, and um, the rewarming. So we were very fortunate. Clayton did not have seizures through his e through his treatment. So his EEG was clean aside from some little things that they noted to follow up on that you know, brain activity that, that he could outgrow. Um, the rewarming really scared us. Even now, the details of it were a lot to take in, but the different things that could happen during rewarming, because you could, you know, you know way more than even um, when you raise in the body's temperature back up. There are a lot of risks and dangers, and that was a very, very scary milestone for us to, to overcome. So at what point in the hospital stay did you start to feel more comfortable? Yeah. So I definitely felt more comfortable when he came out of rewarming and um, he he came out of it with, with no complications. So they took him um, off of the cooling blanket. He was um, still with IV and the oxygen and they were weaning him from morphine. So we were getting to start to see him kind of like move around a little bit. And we got to hold him for the first time. And that was like the highest of highs from going like from, you know, when he was born, the one of the best days of my life was the worst day of my life to holding him for the first time. Like that was just then I felt more like, OK, I'm going to take care of him. Sure, he needs oxygen. We don't know what the future holds. We still have to get his brain MRI done. But this is this this we can do. We yeah. can he's out of that treatment. And that's when I started to feel better. I have anxiety, so I never through the NICU really felt that when you see other kind of term babies that just need a day or two come in and they're just like, Oh, okay, done. Like very I never had that feeling, even when he was discharged. Part of that was probably me being nervous. And part of that was probably his trauma. I was constantly thinking he's going to end up back there. He's going to end up with more brain damage. Something else is going to happen, like his heart or something. How do we know everything's okay? There was a lot. I carried that trauma with me through the whole time. But when he came out of that two man, we could hold him. That kind of like bumped us up. Was there anything that helped you with that anxiety while you were in the NICU and then after you left? I mean, I know those those thoughts still come in um, yeah. and it still kind of overwhelms you, but was there anything that you were able to do or 
somebody you were able to talk to that really helped you be able to process through that anxiety while you were in the NICU? Yeah, um, I would say just the NICU had support there. So um, she um, she's an amazing therapist and she's there specifically to check in with NICU families and then offer services after if you needed that. And they kind of linked us up based on the traumatic and sudden, um, uh, Clayton's traumatic and like sudden event. They were kind of like, this is, you know, she's, she's been through a lot of ups and downs in the last four days. Um, she was somebody I knew was an outstanding resource to me. So that was comforting just to know that I had someone and that's somebody that understood because they were in the NICU, like they worked there. I have wonderful friends very few who I could talk to and just being able to like unload it really helped because it was, it was lonely being there. Our hospital told us they see about um, one cooling um, patient a month. Um, They're one of two in DC that gets um, transfers and the other one is children's hospital. The hospital Clayton was at was the other level four NICU that does um, cooling and everybody, all the nurses were like, where did you deliver? I said, here. They said, nobody delivers here. <laughs> you know, we get all the transfers. And so it was kind of, um, it, we were the only term baby for, for a while. Um, and it was very lonely. Um, we didn't have a community. I felt very like, I have no idea what's going to happen. So having friends to unload with and that could just listen and that I knew cared that really helped me just get it out even though the loneliness also was was in that sense too because none of my friends this happened and none none of my friends had a baby that had this diagnosis none of their friends knew any like there was this I knew no one um so just being able to get it out helped was very helpful Yeah. yeah So let's go back to now you've gotten through those first three to five days. When did the MRI happen? Um, I think his first MRI was at uh, day five. And the doctors were super optimistic. Um, The nurses were more like, we don't, we just don't want to say either way, you know. Um, So do you think it's going to be okay? Like, this is just such a foreign world to me. And with the doctors, um, his attending was like, listen, I think you can expect mild damage to a clear MRI. I think that he looks, he's, you know, he's looking good and, and he's never had the seizures. And so that was really kind of helped us, but nothing takes away that fear of sending your baby for a brain MRI to see if there's brain damage. So that was a crippling fear um, they were really good with us. They gave us the, pre- the preliminary results like as soon as possible. And thankfully, um, we're very lucky that Clayton's um, brain MRI was clear. And um, then they gave us the official reports. And the neonatologist um, said to us, his attending, she said, these things are so complicated and we can't tell the future. Um, but I want you to kind of put out severe effects out of your head. But understand that you won't know how his birth affected him until he's about seven years old. And this was like a new thing for me to digest because I was like, wait, what? (laughs) I have to wait until he's seven? And 
you know, gently, they didn't hand us a list, but they, they mentioned things like, you know, a loss of oxygen to the brain can cause um, learning disabilities or behavioral problems. They found it could cause autism, um, ADHD, you know, all these things. And she was saying, but when you think about it, and this was very comforting to us after this MRI, she said, that's any baby. So Correct. I want you to look at him like, yes, this could happen but try to enjoy him. And that was really great advice for us after going through that really scary like birth through five days where everything felt very critical. Following that, he had his, his NICU ups and downs um, compared to what we saw of, of um, parents of, of micro preemies and, and premature babies. Like we just felt lucky. So I, I cannot compare it to any of that. But we had our you know, he was still severely anemic and he was having daily epigen shot, uh, EPO shots and they were talking about other transfusions. Um, he was having Strider, uh, so they were doing chest x-rays. He was having oxygen, um, DSATs. Um, he did not have the energy to finish bottles. Um, so in my mind, I've now researched the outcome and I'm like, well, what if he can't eat? You know, he might need a feeding tube. So there was lots of, like a, like a permanent feeding tube. So there was Lots of, for about two and a half weeks, there was lots of your ups and downs with him. None of that was easy for me. None yeah. of it. So you had like your high of like, we made it through, but then he's severely anemic and he can't finish a bottle and now he needs chest exit. So it's, it was a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, any, I think any NICU course, it has ups and downs. Very much of the NICU is like a two steps forward, one step back type of process. Probably the best advice I ever got from my husband was to live through bad stuff once. Yeah. Um, at the time he gave me that advice, I was really angry and not interested in hearing that advice. Um, I was also pregnant and hormonal. But in retrospect, that has been, I think, some of the best advice I ever received about trying to manage the ups and downs and the what ifs that come. And so I always tell parents in my NICU, just try as much as you can to stay in the moment and not think about the what ifs that are to come because those what ifs might not ever come. And then you're living through the trauma of needing a G tube every single day. If your baby ends up eating, you never need to live through the trauma of needing a G tube. And if it comes, then we deal with it then. But I think it's much easier said than done. And it takes quite a bit of practice to have those, those worries and those fears come in and then to say, yep, I know you're there, but today I'm just going to focus on Clayton who ate three bottles today. That's more than two and a half yesterday. So today I'm not going to think about a G-tube. Yes. Yes. And that is outstanding advice. It really is. During that, that three week stay in the NICU, what was your favorite moment? I think my favorite moment is definitely getting to hold him for the first time. There were lots of tears. Like, I didn't know if I'd ever get to hold him, especially when he was born. It was just, I felt like I had my baby. And waiting five days to hold your baby is nothing compared to what some of the parents and and my you had gone through. Um, But for for me, it was just so much um, emotion thrown at me in these days that getting to hold him, like, like, all of that just melted away. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So 
If you were able to go back now, you're 15 months out, you've kind of been holding your breath as you hit the four month and the six month and the nine month and the 12 month milestones, right? As you're kind of waiting for those to come. If you could go back as yourself now and tell Mm -hmm. yourself something towards the beginning of your NICU stay, not in the place where the glass wall was, but where you actually might have been able to take it in. Yeah. What would you go back and tell yourself? I think um, I think what what I would tell myself is that to be kind to myself because this um, trauma that that I went through is is um, it's going to take a while and it will come back and visit um, and there will be times where I feel like it's too much to process, but be kind and take it slowly because you need time to process this. You need time to experience sadness and anger and jealousy and all these other emotions because you can't do that while you're in the NICU. You can't just go home from the NICU and even the, the couple weeks out, um, and just process all those emotions. So I think I would plead with myself to please be kind and, and process this on, on your own time. No, I, I think that's fantastic advice. Along those same lines, what would be your advice for moms that are currently in the NICU? I think that my advice would be try and take it day to day. And that it feels like, especially for some moms whose babies are born extremely premature, it feels like it's going to last forever. With Clayton staring at the monitors, the, the days felt so long. And, you know, it was like going to a job. I packed a lunch. I sat in the waiting room, ate a lunch. So these days just feel like no matter how long you're there, five days or over 100 days, it feels like it's going to last forever, but it's not. And it's only going to be part of your baby's story. Um, And you will build on that story. And no matter what the outcome is, you're going to kind of get past that journey, but it will always be with you. It's not something that goes away. I think I'd also say, like, depending on why your child's in the NICU, this you might feel lonely. Like, we felt really, really lonely. And you might not know anybody, but you will find a support group. Um, you will find parents all over the world that have experienced what you have. And, and you will find that you won't feel lonely anymore. Um, you'll see that these things happen. Um, and that hopefully would help give a little bit of, of like hope or, or um, sense of like we're in this together type of, type of thing. Yeah. I think it is really helpful to have uh, other people that have been through something similar. And since the majority of people don't have babies in the NICU, you do have to kind of go out and look for that and look for stories that are similar, which is part of why I wanted to do this podcast and get these stories out there for moms so that they know they're not alone, moms and dads. Do you think that having, or I guess I should say, how do you think having Clayton in the NICU and everything that went through with his, with the trauma after his birth, how do you think that changed you as a parent? So that's a really great question because I already have two older ones. So I know that, that we have changed as parents. I think that 
We are happier with the little things. The milestones mean more. It's no longer comparing like, oh, are you walking? It's more like, I don't care what anybody else is doing. He just took a step. Celebrating little things. I am definitely for better or worse. Like he is way more shielded. You know, when we left, he had about 10 doctors and specialists in in total that were keeping an eye on him or treating various things that came out, minor things that came out of his birth. So he was very guarded for a long time. He is still sleeping um, in our room (laughs) because we cannot let him cry. Um, My first two, uh, they were were moved out around nine months. Um, Clayton is 15 months. I don't see any light at the end of that tunnel. So there are definitely more of um, protective feelings um, following what we went through. There is also, I felt he was much more vulnerable, whether he was or not. Yeah, we kind of celebrate little things in life more since him. Um, No longer really matters where the vacation is, as long as we're all getting to go there together. Yeah, the, the little things mean more. What did I miss that you really want to talk about or share with uh, our listeners? Um, I think that, well, first of all, everyone's journey is different. And um, I just think that by you doing this podcast, like the range of, of stories is it just really builds a nice sense of community for, for families that have been through the NICU. And I just think anybody that has gone through, you know, treatments in, in the NICU is just, it makes you, you've already become stronger. And it just, um, I'm just proud of, <laughs> of the NICU families in general and the NICU staff. And I think that the other thing I would say is um, that I didn't really touch on is that Another thing that's really hard is when you have older kids at home, there was a lot of trauma there. Um, I didn't touch my older kids for two months um, after Clayton was born. Uh, my my oldest had the flu, and then my youngest had RSV. And I was so traumatized that we were going to end up in, in the pediatric ICU with Clayton um, after bringing him home, that it was like me and Clayton and my husband with the big kids. And... We got through it as a family, but looking back, there's a lot of guilt with that, that too. Um, that part is really hard. And the only other thing I would say is to non-NICU families, it's, it's hard. I never understood it. I never understood. I thought babies, kind of like I said earlier, babies would be born or or even though they don't make it and I didn't know about the in-betweens unless they were pre-diagnosed like heart conditions or this or that right so I just kind of figured it's like you go to the NICU you get treated and you go home and like I didn't or like babies who are early you know they get oxygen and and they stay warm and they grow and I did not know the intensity of the level four NICU so when non-NICU families say things like, oh, how old was he? Oh, was this, oh, so he's fine. And it's like a very generalized, like, they were in the NICU, but they're fine. And it's the families go through so much that that's hard because you feel like you're constantly trying to justify why it's not fine right. <laughs> for the families, not just myself, for for all of the families, especially in this level four NICU where we saw a lot, a lot of really, really sad things. Yeah. So um, it's, 
that part is hard trying to um, constantly justify what what NICU families in general are, are going through because there are a lot of comments um, that you know Yeah. And and I think that's a really common feeling amongst parents who kind of are in the NICU and come out, whether your baby is there for 120 days, or even if your baby's only there for 10 days, like a 34 week late preterm baby, you're still in the NICU, you still have a NICU journey, and it still needs to be validated. It's, it is a different way to start off your parenting journey with that child, whether it's your first child or your 10th child, it does change how you think about and how you uh, interact with parenting in general. Oh, I just so appreciate you telling your story. And I think people just don't realize that term babies are also in the NICU. And I just am so grateful that you we're willing to reach out and and be brave and share your story. It's just been a joy talking to you. It's been a joy talking to you. And I always feel bad. And I still struggle with this guilt of Clayton's. He's doing well. You know, I mean, we won't know, obviously, as you know, um, until he enters school. But I, you know, we, we go on, I go on the support group and, you know, other babies have, have other outcomes and it's it's feels guilty to even share what happened because and that was my other hope that hopefully somebody would be in a similar situation where it's like they had a a bad kind of diagnosis but then in a and a really kind of traumatic NICU experience but then it's a positive and it's it's okay to share it because it's it's the NICU experience um it's kind of separate from from your baby's experience if that makes sense yeah like what you go through in the NICU is different than your baby's medical journey correct and both of them are valid journeys yeah so I appreciate you like wanting to kind of be accepting of of stories like like it's just something that really affected a lot of aspects of my life the past year so I really I think you're amazing. Oh, thank (laughs) you so much. (laughs) So thank you so much. Thank you again to Megan for joining us on this Mighty Littles podcast. Join us in two weeks for an interview with Julie Cullen. She is a licensed clinical social worker in private practice who specializes in trauma. And I think one of the themes that we're finding in doing these interviews is that the NICU really is traumatic. Whether you had an uncomplicated course or a very complicated course, it it leaves some lasting scars. And Julie's going to be coming on to talk to us about that trauma. I hope that everybody is having a lovely week, and I look forward to seeing you again in two weeks on Tuesday. You keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast.